Hi there, and welcome to AutoLine. I'm your guest host, Carol Kane. There are few industries as important to our nation as automotive, and there are few industries that have experienced such seismic changes through the decades as automotive, which is why today's show is going to focus on the industry, the products, the people, and the headline-grabbing stories with three nationally acclaimed journalists who have had a front row seat. John McElroy is the host of AutoLine, and he's written thousands of articles on this industry. Today, he's switching sides on the roundtable as he answers questions. Tony Swan is the esteemed auto reviewer and pundit who's written and spoken thousands of words about the rise and drives of vehicles before they hit the road, and he's dazzled listeners and readers. And Ed Lampham is the award-winning executive editor of Automotive News who has his pulse on the industry and putting a focus on the executives behind the levers. We'll get started with our conversation right after this. Production of Auto Line this week is underwritten by... Let's talk truth. When buying a car, we all want a great deal. Yet it's possible you could pay thousands more for the same car as your neighbor. That's why True Car provides upfront pricing information and a network of True Car certified dealers that guarantee savings without negotiation. Now, if someone paid too much for their car, well, it won't be you. So, when buying a car, get guaranteed savings. Visit TrueCar.com. Welcome to AutoLine. We are now joined by three seasoned veterans with over 117 years of experience between them writing and talking about automotive as we welcome John McElroy, who must be interesting on the other side of the table there. Uh, totally different from this <laughs> angle, I tell you. <laughs> we have Ed Lampman from Automotive News and Tony Swan, esteemed auto reviewer. It's great to see you guys and talking about a subject that's near and dear to all of us here. So, John, let me start with you since this is your show. You're normally sitting in this seat over here. In, in, uh, just give us a quick reader digest of your career and what brought you to this point of covering automotive? Sure, I got out of college and I thought, okay, now what? And I thought, well, you know, they always tell you, do what you like, and I liked writing. And in writing classes, they always said, write about what you know. And I thought I knew a thing or two about cars, so I thought, I gotta break into the car business. I gotta get on one of the car magazines. And then when I got into it, I found out that the automotive industry is as interesting as the cars themselves. So how many years have you been doing this? 34 years. Okay, Ed Lampham, Automotive News. Uh, how did you get interested in automotive and what was your first job? Well, I grew up in Detroit and my father's a retired engineer. So, you know, the car business came naturally. When I got out of college, I had a few jobs and sort of found my way over to uh, Ward's Automotive Reports. Uh, Forty years ago, I started there, and I've been at Automotive News now since uh, January of 1977. You know, that's, you almost get a trophy for being in this industry in one place for that many years. That's incredible. Thank you. And Tony, Tony Swan, you have been writing about automotive and giving all kinds of information to people and, and uh, people who are driving cars for many years here. When did you start? What was your first action? Yeah, job? I've been misguiding many. Well, I started <laughs> out uh, in the area of, the, I grew up in the area of the big inch V8, but uh, I was a history major. And of course, then I went into uh, sports writing. And that eventually led to uh, writing about cars with Auto Week, went back when Auto Week was a racing journal. And at various times, I was with a motorcycle magazine. I've been involved in the advertising business. Uh, even PR, where anybody can tell you I'm not cut out to be a PR man. <laughs> but uh, most recently with Car and Driver for the last 13 years, and now I'm a contributing editor there. 
And so since, since all of you have covered automotive for so many different years, it, it's an industry and it's a car product that captures the American fancy and psyche unlike any others here. And, and out of all the years, John, that you have covered automotive, what's been the number one story in your mind that really just piqued your interest and captured your interest? You know, I'm not sure there was any one story. I would say the, uh, the one theme, though, has been the globalization of the auto industry. You know, when I first got into the business, it was still the big three. They dominated in the U.S. market. In fact, we're still by far the biggest three-car companies in the world. Boy, has that changed in that in my time here. And Ed, in the years, the 40-some years you've been doing this and stories, what is there one that stands out that rises to the top of many? Well, you know, if you look at, at this town, this city, and the importance of the Detroit Three automakers, you know, it's the bankruptcy and what they went through, the restructuring, how they could have gone from, as John described it, the biggest, most powerful companies on the Fortune 500 to being in bankruptcy, and that's been a tough one. When I started in 1972, uh, the, the uh, big four, we called them, the big three, including American Motors, had 86% of the U.S. auto market. Volkswagen, which had 3% of the market, was the largest import. And today, Volkswagen, again, has about 3%, but they're nowhere near the biggest import in this country. And Tony, you're the seasoned veteran of the, of the trio here. The story amongst the many years that rises to the top to you is... Well, the seasoned veteran stuff. What kind of seasoning are we using here besides time? Well, uh, to reinforce what Ed uh, was just uh, talking about there, the domestic industry seeding a lot of its market share uh, deliberately and not, uh, to foreign automakers, particularly the Japanese and now the Koreans, um, and they're not going to get a lot of that back. But the other thing, I think, uh, is the ongoing improvement of cars in general. There aren't really any bad cars anymore. And I, I date to a time when I'd look through the paper and I'd see eight cars for uh, sale, and it would say loaded, R and H which meant radio and heater. <laughs> Those were the wonderful extras. And Those were the good old days, I think, maybe. Good old long ago, yeah, <laughs> far away. Those cars are now collectibles. Yeah. yeah, and John, I know you were talking about the Japanese and when they first came in, how different it was versus how the Japanese are perceived in the marketplace now. When I came into this business, there were still a lot of World War II veterans uh, in the executive suites and even amongst my colleagues in the media. And they hated anything to do with the Japanese. In fact, they didn't even really want to cover it. They just wanted to ignore it. In fact, Henry Ford famously said, I want to say this was 1977 when they introduced the Ford Fairmont, that this was the car that was going to push the Japanese back to the beaches and into the ocean. I mean, it was this World War II Normandy analogies thing that was going on. But of course, the Japanese came in with terrific quality. They started building cars in the United States without UAW labor. And you know, look what's going on right now. They, uh, the, the imports in general have about half the market here. When you look at the, the issue of the imports and what's happened here, and Tony mentioned too about how much it's shifted through the years, how do you, why do you think that perception changed? What, what led to the Japanese bringing in products that had to be sent back to get fixed to the point where now they're viewed oftentimes even still as having the, you know, the premium quality product? Well, the, the up, uptick in quality that John was just talking about, absolutely, that's been an important part of it and, and cars that people want and that they can afford. And for a long time, they were in a, a price uh, advantage position. They still are to some extent. But of course, now the Koreans come in and uh, competitive pricing and what you get with the Korean cars a competitive price, and it's loaded with stuff. 
and that's the key to it. I don't know that the Japanese cars or the you know the Hyundai's of this world are ever going to be per perceived as domestic automobiles, but I think that uh, that whole tradition has waned, and it, uh, people don't care about that anymore. Do you think, is there still such a thing of an import versus a domestic, when so much of a car is made all over the globe? It's not just made in Detroit. It's not just made in China. Its parts come from all over the place. Is the definition of what is considered a locally made car or truck necessarily true anymore, Ed? You know, it, it has changed, and if you talk to the people at the UAW, they will tell you that, you know, cars that aren't built by the UAW are, are sending their, their capital elsewhere. But, but, you know, I remember when uh, Toyota introduced the Lexus brand as a luxury brand and uh, Nissan introduced Infiniti and the Germans sort of laughed up their sleeves, you know, that these Japanese brands were going to challenge them and they've done a very good effective job of doing that. And whether or not they are perceived as a U.S. car, they have found a place in, in the market and in the hearts of a lot of Americans. Since we're talking so much about this industry, which has had such an imprint on America here, and you guys have all written about cars, the trucks, you've test-driven them, what cars do you think have made the most difference in this industry uh, through the years here? Is there one or two you can point to, John, that say that really was a, you know, changed the whole demeanor of the marketplace? I'll point to one American car, and that was the original Ford Taurus. It was stylistically different from anything that had uh, hit. It was an extremely well done car. I mean, it, it was the, the match of the Europeans, in fact. And what was so interesting about it is Ford at the time, this was 1986 when it came out, had a totally different product development process. It's what they called the Team Taurus approach, where they benchmarked everything, established what's best in class. And it worked brilliantly for Ford. And why Ford did not take that process and duplicate it for everything else that it did from there to now I, is a big puzzle. What do you think it's due to? Changing of management, maybe? They keep bringing in like their MBA teams. They have new people running the company. There was and... a, a terrific executive by the name of Lou Veraldi who led that effort. And shortly after uh, the, the Taurus was launched and it, to, to great accolades and, and a smash hit, he unfortunately got very ill and passed away, and I, I think that whole approach kind of went with him. The, uh, just a footnote to the Taurus, so the, all the executives at Ford were terrified at launch because it was so radical for yeah. them and such a departure that they thought, boy, if this tanks, we're all going to be shot at sunrise. But, of course, it was a huge success. And, Tony, in your book, as you sit here and look at all the vehicles you've test-driven and written about, and any of them stand out as one that really... A game-changer? Yeah. Well, you know, Ed just mentioned the Lexus, uh, Lexus LS400, and I was on the original launch for it, which, with great chutzpah, they yeah. staged in Germany. And uh, we're out <laughs> driving around. On Take the, that for saying, laughing at absolutely. us, right? Absolutely. We're driving around on the Autobahn, and somehow the people at Automotor and Sport, which was a, a very prestigious German car magazine, had gotten wind of this. And so every time we stopped at, uh, you know, some changeover point, that sort of thing, these guys would be in our face. Well, what are you thinking? Is this, is this as good as Mercedes? And it was. Yeah. And, of course, uh, the rest is history. They changed the game. Yeah. And, Ed, as far as vehicles that are game changers in your book? Well, if you look at, I think, the Toyota Prius most recently has, has taught people that there is a place for gasoline electric hybrids. I think the Chrysler minivans uh, had a big role in, in, in 
vehicles that can move people and stuff. And if you look at the, uh, the Ford Explorer and what it did for the SUV to make it more of a family vehicle, you know, it, it, in the segments, there's now more of a blending. Once upon a time, there were cars and there were trucks. And, and now it's almost a, a indistinguishable. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would say, though, that preceding the, uh, the Ford, uh, you know, the Explorer was the uh, Jeep uh, Cherokee. That was a that really changed the game there, but uh, I agree with this uh, the continuum theory. I mean, it, it, we're having real trouble with North American Car of the Year, trying to make uh, distinguish uh, distinguish between trucks and cars. And it's with these hybrids changing, everything is sort of consolidating here. As far as gasoline-powered cars, with what's going on with gas prices, which we know is at historic lows here, it seems like, John, just a year or so ago, we were talking about it, saying, oh, my gosh, if gas goes up to $5 in this country, beyond what's going to happen, it's gone the reverse here. What's the toll, do you think, on, on the domestic uh, auto industry? Nobody knows yet. I've talked to a bunch of uh, executives uh, at the American, Japanese, yeah. Korean, and European car companies saying, look, shale oil, shale gas, this is a game changer. Are you factoring this into your plans? And they all tell me no. We, we, you know, we're planning on the, the CO2 reduction that Europe is requiring. We're looking at carbon dioxide and fuel economy uh, legislation in the United States. Our hands are tied. We have to meet these laws. What do you make of electric vehicles, the Chevy Volt, for example, and what's going on with that? Is this uh, a vehicle that will be here and be a game changer ultimately, or is this something that will be sort of like an Edsel? We'll look back in 20 years and say... The Chevy Volt, uh, was, we perceived it as a game changer. It's not an electric vehicle. Yeah. It's an extended range electric vehicle, or however you would characterize it. And we thought it'd be a game game changer, changer, excuse me, and so far it's tanked. How have you seen the Volt, and what do you predict will happen with it going forward? Well, I, you know, the, they're going to come back with a Cadillac version of it, if you will, that's, that's similar to it. They're staying with it. They have... They have reputation, they have capital investment, and they're going to try and make a go of it. Um, at some point, uh, electrification will be in more vehicles in, in various forms, whether it's an extended, extended range EV, whether it's a, a gasoline electric hybrid, or whether it's a, a pure electric plug-in. So uh, that's the way we're moving. A lot depends on, on the price of, uh, of gasoline and what you buy at the fuel pump. That'll be the big game. What well, another element that's in there, too, is... Uh where is all this electricity coming from? And we have an administration in place right now that thinks that electric cars are magic, but uh, the internal combustion engine isn't going to go away anytime soon. Since all of you are involved in different ways with different awards and giving out products and awards for vehicles of uh, all of this, with many of the cars that you've driven, what's been your favorite car, John? Oh, geez, my favorite favorite car. I tend to like cars that are small, nimble, and fast, and Porsche just seems to build the right kind of combination for me. But that's, that's my, my sort of lust of what I want in a car. You know, if, if I want to go up north skiing with a bunch of friends, boy, it's hard to beat a Chevy Suburban. Ed mentioned minivans the other day, if, if, or, or the, just a minute ago. If you've got a family, you, you cannot beat a minivan. Right. So when you ask me what's my favorite car, it almost depends on what am I going to do today because I'll pick the right vehicle for that. Mr. Lampham, your favorite vehicle? A 1962 Austin Healey 3000 BT7. Yes! <laughs> and why? For people who don't know, what, why? I own one. Okay. <laughs> good well, enough, I guess. that's a good reason. But uh, one of the, we get asked that question a lot. And uh, I always say, well, how much do I get to spend? But I've reached an age where, as much as I love sports cars, I mean, I'd love to have a Ferrari 458. Whoa, yes. But something that you have to drive all the time, yeah. uh, I think I would love to have a Cadillac CTS-V. 
a lot of people do there. The other thing, too, that's changed through the years, the decades that you've all been involved with this, is covering the industry. Auto journalism has changed. And, John, is it better or worse today than when you started? I think it's a whole lot better. When I came into the business, there were almost no women whatsoever. No women at the car companies or the suppliers or in the media. That's been a huge change. It, there's still a, a big imbalance, but it's a whole lot better than it used to be. Will we ever have a CEO, a female CEO of one of the Detroit Three? I, I think that will happen, but not in the foreseeable future, unless they go outside their ranks. So, you know, when you look at the women who are coming up, and there are a number of them right now, there may be one who's got a shot at it, Mary Barra at General yeah. Motors. Mm -hmm. But that's it. And, and when you get outside of the United States, I don't see any woman having any chance at all. Ed, is there, and let me just, I know where there's a lot to say about all of this, but in, in terms of journalism, how it's changed from when you first started in the auto journalism business, better or worse now? Uh, it is definitely better. The generation before us, I think, tended to be, I want to be respectful to my elders, but, but, but they were less questioning of what the, the auto companies were doing. They accepted more on face value. They, were, they weren't willing to challenge. Uh, and some of that had to do with the product coming in. Some of it had to do with other social changes. But, but the blocking that's going on today, you know, you've got bloggers, you know, that will all s s sort its way out. You know, uh, American consumers of information and news and analysis will find sources they can trust, whether they're bloggers or their daily newspapers or their right. monthly magazines. Right. And Tony, as far as journalism? I disagree with the uh, total improvement because of dot-com, because of what's yeah. happened with digital. Uh, you have a huge variety of stuff out there, and Ed's right. Sooner or later, you're going to sort it out for yourself, but a lot of it the emphasis is on instant gratification. Right. Get that stuff up there as fast as you can, and sometimes there's uh, reliable information there, sometimes it's well written, many times it is not. And bloggers, everybody is a journalist right. now. Yeah. This is not necessarily improving the brief. It, it definitely changed. The other thing that's changed is there have been a lot of personalities in this automotive industry, and you've covered them all through the many decades here. And John, who struck you as one of the more interesting personalities in, uh, in this whole industry? I, I guess for who I was able to meet, Lee Iacocca has got to uh, really uh, rank up there. In fact, I, I always uh, made a point of crossing my arms when he spoke, so I didn't reach in my wallet and buy whatever he was selling because the guy was an amazing salesperson. He yeah. could sell you on the company or the product line or whatever it was. Also, maybe the best public speaker I've ever seen in the automotive industry. Wow. Great endorsement from that. And Ted? I, I, I agree about Leah Cook. John DeLorean. He was a character. Wow. He came out of General Motors, went on his own. He went his own way and, and he influenced a lot and changed a lot of perceptions. Tony? Bob Lutz. Bob Lutz is my absolute hero in this business, and I don't think there's everybody been anybody like him, or at least in our lifetimes. And uh, speaking of Iacocca, I remember one time Bob Lutz came to New York, and he's introducing the Chrysler Imperial, which was K-car-based, and it was awful. And he gets up there, and he says, this is to a press group, and he says, what you're looking at here is the chairman's taste. <laughs> and Iacocca was the chairman. John, do you think if, if uh, Iacocca and DeLorean were around today and running the companies, these companies would be in the same situation that they have been in up until the bailout of 2008? Uh, I, I think they, in fact, played a role, a big role in Detroit's decline. 
Uh, Iacocca, even though he did a lot of good things, uh, he cut a lot of cost when it came to the product. They put a lot of questionable quality out there. They tried to sell a lot of stuff with razzmatazz and be an American and buy this American car. So even though he was fun to listen to as a speaker, I don't necessarily believe he was one of the best executives out there. Ed? Yeah, DeLorean uh, did, a, did a book. He did, actually did a couple books, but he did one with our friend Pat Wright. Uh, on a clear day, you can see General Motors where he which talked he about... Which he disavowed. Which... DeLorean did. Well, and all of the things that he told Pat, all the stuff that was relayed in that book, the criticism of General Motors, were things that he later did himself when he had his own I think company. And where the generous motors, the whole, the whole thing came out of this whole different mindset of thing here. And, yes. And, and again, if, if DeLorean and, and Iacocca were running these companies today? Well, DeLorean's uh, achievements are kind of questionable. I mean, look what happened. Uh, they never did figure out where all the money went. Uh, Colin Chapman had the good grace to die, so he didn't have to answer those questions. The Brits would still like to know, where, where's the money? And uh, yeah. what would he have done? Uh, I think that DeLorean developed a pretty serious uh, megalomania. Uh, Iacocca, a little bit of tunnel vision there, and uh, this is the way I'm going to do it. But having somebody who can actually be in a position to make decisions unilaterally and make them stick, I think that that's very helpful. As we're sitting here in the middle of the Motor City, which has been so dominant in the automotive history and what's taken place here, let's talk real quickly here about what's going to be happening in this industry over the next 20, 30 years and how Detroit figures into it. And, John, will Detroit remain the Motor City? Is it going to become more globalization and maybe move over to Shanghai? Or what do you... Oh, look, you know, the, the Chinese are going to hit any year now. They're, they're going they keep to keep saying that, though. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. The good thing about Detroit, though, is that we've done a terrific job of bringing a lot of at least white-collar jobs, maybe not blue-collars. Toyota's got a massive tech center and design center here. So does Nissan. So do Hyundai. So do Kia. A lot of big international suppliers, the Bosch's, the Siemens, the Yazakis, the Densos, they've all come here. Why? Because we can make and design and engineer anything here. Anything. You can still do it here. So we're, we're, we continue to bring in talent. There's a couple of Chinese firms that are here now. Okay. Not the car companies, but I think Detroit's still going to be the motor city for years to come. And who is stuff with the consolidation that will be continue to take place in this industry? It's been that way for some years, I guess, real quickly here, too. Tony, who do you think is still going to be left standing as far as auto companies of the Detroit three? Well, uh, I think that Chrysler's uh, recovery from this recent uh, downturn has been really remarkable. Uh, and Fiat, uh, Marchione, the, as a, ch a chief executive, is a terrific guy. He's very exciting. So I think that all three of them, for the foreseeable future, look to be in pretty good shape. Ed? Uh, there will be consolidation where company A buys company B right. and is swallowed by company C. But more and more we're seeing that there are partnerships and relationships uh, among uh, automakers where a, a company that has a, a specialty um, such as Tesla can provide automobiles for Toyota, which is one of the greatest production automo automobile companies in the world. So that it's, it's, the, it's the ownership issue, but it's also the collaboration issue. And how does this, in this country, Detroit, again, we saw with the bailouts, which you referenced at the very start in 2008, a lot of people said at the time that most countries support their automotive industry. In the U.S., it's been, it has not been necessarily that case here, John. What do you think is ahead going forward now on all of this? I mean, are, are these companies now right-sized and everything going okay so that no more government bailouts? will be needed going forward, do you think? Well, let's see what happens. I mean, uh, you know, it's the old Santayana line. Those who uh, fail to learn the lessons of history are, are committed to repeat them, the, the mistakes of history. 
Look, let's see what happens. Uh, the auto industry is going to be around a long time. It's going to evolve from where it is right now today. There's going to be many more players, as I indicated before, with the Chinese getting involved in it. Uh, but uh, like I said, uh, I, I think Detroit will still play a role in the future. It may not be as big a role as it was in the past, but I think Detroit will be punching above its weight for some time to come. And I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the conversation real quickly of unions, the UAW. We know that Michigan just became the 24th right-to-work state, which kind of changes the whole game as far as the unions go with the UAW when the conversations come up here. Will unions lose might, do you think, going forward as a result of that? Unions have been losing might. When the UAW has failed to organize the transplants in this country, you know that the game has changed. Once upon a time, they represented every single American who built an automobile. No longer. I, I don't think the right to work issue is going to have much effect in the state of Michigan. I think most of the workers there, at least the current ones, are, are predisposed to be union members and to participate in the UAW. Uh, but I, as new companies find their way here, that may change. And Tony, any thoughts on that? The um I think that that's correct, that the uh, domestics, uh, it's going to be a long time before they respond to that and, uh, you know, disavow the UAW. But Toyota has been kind of lurking around here. And when they built that plant in Texas to produce pickup trucks, they were also looking at Michigan. And Governor Granholm at the time said, oh, yeah, UAW, that's not going to be an issue, no problem. Well, guess where they went? They didn't want to have anything to do with the UAW. But coming uh, with a, a right to work situation, who knows? Yeah. Uh, although the UAW uh, it was in the uh, uh, NUMI plant with the joint that's, venture. With, that's the only with example. But at, and yeah, as you pointed, pointed out, though, they have not organized one transplant. Yeah. It, despite many attempts. A lot of conversation about the UAW, much more that we, we don't have time for at this point. But I'm going to ask you guys as we wind down, give me a, cr a crazy prediction, something in 20 or 30 years that will happen in this industry that people will be surprised to hear about. And John? Uh... Well, Tony knows where I'm going to go with this because we keep arguing about it. But I keep saying the next big thing in automotive is autonomous cars, cars that can drive themselves, where you get in and say, take me to the office, take me to the airport, whatever it happens to be. And I think we'll see those far faster than anyone realizes. And that sounds like the Jetsons to me. <laughs> Ed? Well, when I was a kid and was reading in my weekly reader about flying cars, I, I, thought, I thought we'd see them by 1980. Uh, I, I'd like to see, think that, that we will see them at least on a, a, a limited scale before too long. It takes all the two, fun out of the cars driving them, though, you know? It's kind of just the experience. Two responses. One... Flying cars. Anybody who's been to New York City and seen the taxi cabs knows that's a real bad idea. <laughs> and driverless cars, two things. One, what happens to insurance? Because every, everything has to be in, you know, driverless or it doesn't work. And two, where's the incentive for automakers to make distinctions between these cars? Exactly, and it takes the whole fun out of driving the car, no less. <laughs> there will still be enthusiasts like Tony and I and, and Ed. Ed we're going to get out there and in our non-synchronized manual transmissions and heel and toe our way to, to bliss. And, John, you get the final word, which is appropriate, as this is your show. I want to thank you guys so much for being here. You, let's regroup in 30 years, talk about some of these predictions, and see what worked out here. Okay. Thank you for watching. We'll see you again. AutoLine. I'm Carol Kane. Production of Auto Line this week is underwritten by. Let's talk truth. When buying a car, we all want a great deal. Yet it's possible you could pay thousands more for the same car as your neighbor. That's why True Car provides upfront pricing information 
and a network of TrueCar certified dealers that guarantee savings without negotiation. Now, if someone paid too much for their car, well, it won't be you. So, when buying a car, get guaranteed savings. Visit TrueCar.com.